The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. I mentioned last week that this dialogue between Job and his friends kind of dominates the whole central part of the book, uh, covering all the way from chapter 4 into chapter 28. And I also mentioned in last week's sermon that it could all be organized around these three cycles. And in a way, you may kind of look at it and go, well, where do you get that from? Like, why, why do you call them three cycles? Well, the reason why so many scholars have arranged it into these three cycles is because a pretty clear pattern emerges when you look at these chapters where you will see um, one person after another taking their turn to speak. And so Eliphaz, the elder statesman, seems to always go first. And then it's followed by Bildad, and then it goes to Zophar. And in between each of their speeches is Job's reply. Sometimes Job's reply is to them directly, and other times Job will choose to address God himself. Um, what's interesting is in the last cycle, uh, I don't know what happens, but Zophar doesn't get a turn. He doesn't get a last turn, but instead, Job will take two turns, where normally Zophar should speak, but he will go on an extended speech about summarizing everything that he's been trying to say in his conversation with these three friends. Um, last week, we looked at the first cycle, chapters 4 to 14, and today the focus will be the second cycle. Chapters 15 to 21. We're covering a lot of ground in a few. I, I never preach like this, okay? <laughs> covering this many chapters in a single message. I said, as we're, I, and I, I, I apologize for those of you who feel this is getting really redundant. I, I just want to drive this framework into your minds, though, so you understand what's happening in the book of Job. But at the heart of this story are these three truths that hang in the balance. My goal is by the end of the series, all of you could draw this diagram from memory, okay? But these three truths hang in the balance. First is the principle of retribution, which basically states that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. The righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. And then the second truth is that Job is a righteous man. He's blameless. He did nothing wrong here. And then the third is has to do with God's own character, his goodness, and his justice. But in the face of Job's extraordinary suffering, the argument is that one of these three truths cannot stand. One of them is proven false. And as I said last time, for Job's friends, the easiest point of attack is Job's righteousness, isn't it? In order to uphold the principle of retribution, which the Bible talks about, and the justice and the goodness of God, Job cannot be righteous then. He cannot be righteous, although he appears to be. Well, Job is certain that he has done nothing to deserve this, to this extent of suffering anyway. And so for Job, he eventually begins to question God's character, his justice, his goodness. And one of the big takeaways from this first cycle of conversations between Job and his friends was the danger of presuming 
that we see everything clearly. And in that position of seeing clearly, we can stand in judgment of God and his ways. As Job would say in Job chapter 10, verse 13, speaking to God, this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know this was in your mind. I know your mind, God. I know what you're trying to do here. And the warning is, no, we don't. We are so far from fully understanding God and his ways. Um, let, me, I, let me just, I, I thought this is a little bit more of a lighthearted way to just, just try to nurture the humility in us. But there is this illusion known as Adelson's uh, checker shadow. Okay, and I don't know how many of you have come across this, but you see checker box A and checker box B. Let me ask you a very simple question. Which one is darker and which one is lighter? Which one is darker? Anyone? A, right? What if I told you they're the exact same shade of gray? Would you believe me? <laughs> Stare at it all you want, but I am telling you, B and A are the identical shade of gray. Do you believe me? <laughs> so we're going, yes. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> well, what if I ran a gray bar across both of them and showed you it? <laughs> now, do you believe me? <laughs> Honestly, I've seen a lot of optical illusions. This one is witchcraft to me, okay? <laughs> Can you go back and forth? Isn't that mind-blowing? They're literally the exact same tone of gray. You go to the, yeah. Um, I know this is kind of, may feel silly to you, but my point is this, is sometimes we're just so convinced that we see something clearly. And we say, there's no other option. I shared you the story about the rental car experience I had last week, right? A lot of people had fun with that. And go, ah, you know? um, we think we see it all. We think we know the right conclusion. But I think if the book of Job is calling anything of us, it is an attitude of humility that maybe we don't see as clearly as we think we do. And sometimes the conclusions we come to, especially when it has to do with God and his ways, must be done so with great caution, attributing things to God. Well, we now turn to the second cycle. And as we turn to the second cycle, the tone of the rhetoric actually changes pretty dramatically. The, the conversation between Job and his friends becomes much sharper. It's much more biting and much more accusatory. And once again, Eliphaz will begin the conversation. So in Job 15, 1 to 10, it says this. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with a hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we do not know? 
What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men even older than your father. Eliphaz was very diplomatic in his first speech. But in this one, he has lost all patience with Job and his endless claims of innocence. And he says to Job, your words are empty to us now. Not only that, but in verse 4, he is actually suggesting your words cause spiritual harm to people. You are, you are bad, Job. You are not a good person. And he's, he accuses Job of, of not only being deceptive and crafty, but also arrogant. Man, you are so proud of yourself. You, you think you are so innocent. And then he says this to Job in verses 20 to 28. All his days the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. Terrifying sounds fill his ears. When all seem well, marauders attack him. He despairs of escaping the realm of darkness. He is marked for the sword. He wanders about for food like a vulture. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. Troubles overwhelm him like a king po poised to attack because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. Though his face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh, he will inhabit ruined towns and houses where no one lives, houses crumbling to rubble. So Eliphaz is talking about the wicked person in general, but it is very clear by the details that he includes, which mirror what Job is going through, like marauders attacking and destroying your home, that he is actually talking about Job. And so in essence, what Eliphaz is doing is he is placing Job into the camp of the wicked. And he's saying, you know what, Job? Everything that is happening to you is well-deserved because you are wicked. And to these harsh accusations, Job will reply in chapter 16, verse 1 to 5, then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will you, your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I, can, I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Job is now confessing the damaging impact that his friend's words are having on his soul. They supposedly came to comfort him. But all they have done is twisted the knife deeper into his side. And he says, I would not do this to you. Why do you do this to me? And then he says this of God. In verses 7 to 9, Surely God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up and it has become a witness my gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My, opponents fasten, my opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Job is ramping up the rhetoric, even against God. And he's saying, basically, God, how I am experiencing you is like a wild animal who is hunting me down to tear me to pieces like I am your prey. His view of God continues to deteriorate. And he now sees a God that is actively pursuing him to destroy his life. Well, Bildad 
enters the conversation and he piles on with Job. More descriptions of the judgment of the wicked. In verses 5 to 6, the lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. And like Eliphaz, Bildad includes details that clearly point to the fact that Job is numbered among the wicked. In verses 11 to 13, all around terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. His strength is famished and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. Remember, one of Job's manifestations of his declining health was these painful, itchy sores that covered his body, resulting in him scraping at his skin with, with broken pieces of pottery just to gain a little relief. And so he says, you know what happens to the wicked? Their skin falls off. <laughs> That's what God does to the wicked. In verses 19 to 21, he has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where once he lived. People of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who does not know God. This is a really low blow, right? All of Job's kids died. And he says, this is what happens to the wicked. They have no descendants. God kills them all. And on top of that, he not only accuses Job of being an evil man, but he says, such is the person who does not even know God. In other words, Job, why is all this happening to you? Because you don't even have a relationship with God. As far as God is concerned, you are a stranger to him. He doesn't know you. He doesn't even know your name, Job. This is why you are suffering like this. Again, we see the impact of this verbal onslaught on Job as he says in reply in chapter 19, verse 1 to 6. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. And then later on in the chapter, Job would add in verses 21 to 22, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity on me. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Job is essentially asking his friends, my God, where is your humanity? Do you have no compassion for what I'm going through? Are there no limits to what you are willing to accuse me of doing without understanding my situation? All you do is incessantly attack me. Now, I want to say this. This isn't the main teaching here in this portion of Job. But as I was studying the second cycle, I was struck, very struck, by the carelessness and cruelty of Job's friend's words. And I, I want to pause for a moment, fully acknowledging this is not the primary teaching here, but inviting you as well to think about the careless words that so often fall from your own lips. What is the harm, in other words, you are causing to others 
by the words that come out of your mouth. You hear a juicy piece of gossip, and you're already excited about the list of people that you're going to call and tell them what happened. You never share anything vulnerable or revealing about yourself, but you're more than willing to dish the dirt on somebody else's misfortunes. Someone is struggling in a relationship, and rather than trying to heal that broken relationship, the truth is you pour fire, you pour fuel onto that fire and makes things so much worse by the things that you contribute to that struggle. Think of the thoughtless words of advice that have flown from your lips without any serious consideration for what may be best for that person or what God may be doing in that person's life. Of course, you walk into it with your words of wisdom and you have all the bright ideas for them, not understanding how those words might really impact that person and the choices that they make. How about words of condemnation spoken to a spouse or a child? in a moment of anger or frustration that have shaped how that person sees themselves to this very day. What I'm saying is we live in a culture where the truth is we don't understand the weight or the value of the words we use. In our world, words are cheap, aren't they? We throw them around thinking that we can just take them back when we see the damage that they cause. When we screw up, It's so convenient to say to them, hey, man, sorry, I didn't mean it. But listen to what Jesus says about words. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In a way, Jesus is saying there are no random words that just accidentally fall out of your mouth. Our words flow from what is in our hearts. That is why we will be held accountable by God for the words that we use. Unlike our culture, the Bible sees words as incredibly important. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 26 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. When we see what is happening with Job's friends and the way they just spew whatever's on the top of their heads, I think it ought to give us pause to say, am I like that? Do I let words rush too quickly out of my mouth before I've really considered the impact that these words are going to have on this person. At the end of the book, God himself is going to confront these three men. And he's going to tell them what he thinks about their words. In Job chapter 42, verse 7, it says, It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you, and against your two friends. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me what is right. How dare you represent me with your falsehoods 
How dare you claim that you know the heart that I represent to this guy, Job, when all you said were lies. You are not my representative. You do not speak for me. And my wrath is kindled against you. You have accused Job speech after speech of something he is not guilty of. He did not do those things that you say he did. And yet, you made his life a misery with your accusations. Our words are perhaps never as weighty and important as they are when we make claims about God and his ways. Now, I, I hesitate to say this because I think we're going to all have really quiet Bible studies next time we meet. And go, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, listen, I think, I think what God is getting at here is this, is saying words are powerful. Words are important. Words do have an enormous impact on people. And so the next time you are so quickly thinking about what you're trying to say to a friend, a fellow church member, a family member, I think what the Bible is saying, could you just pause for a moment and think about why you're wanting to say what you want to say? And does this really represent the heart of God or is this your own agenda, your own wisdom being inserted into this conversation. God, give me caution about the things that I say to another person. Well, Job's speech continues in verses 23 to 27 in what are um, probably the most famous words, among the most famous words in the book of Job. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Many songs have been written about these verses. They are some of the most famous and beloved words of Job in the entire story. And the reason why is because many of us read into them a messianic prophecy that what Job is really talking about here is Jesus. And I hate to pour cold water <laughs> on this, but I actually don't think that's what's going on here. I don't believe Job is referring to Jesus. Uh, and let me try to make a case for that. For one thing, the New Testament itself never points to this passage as messianic or saying that this was about Jesus, first of all. And I also want to say this. What is clear is that Job does long for a redeemer, which is the same thing as an advocate, which we looked at last week, that someone will stand on his behalf in a court of law and represent his case to the judge. That much is clear. And also, what is clear from this is that he believes that Redeemer will show up, not in the next life, but in this life, before he is dead. In other words, he's saying, I believe that even if everything feels hopeless to me, that in the final hour when it all seems like it's going to be lost, and before I die, I believe that my Redeemer is going to show up and rescue me. And 
What is interesting is in this plea, he even points out his skin condition. He is basically saying, it may come down to the point where all my skin has been scraped off with this pottery shards. And maybe when there's just that last piece of flesh dangling on my body, yet in that flesh, my Redeemer will come and rescue me in that final hour. Now, why, does I, why do I say that this doesn't seem to align with Jesus who is presented as our mediator and advocate in the New Testament? Well, because of this. In the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as our redeemer, but that's because through his death, he paid our debt so that our sins could be forgiven. And Jesus is our, not only our redeemer, but also our advocate in the sense that the New Testament also says he therefore then stands at the right hand of God, interceding for us, claiming our innocence because our debt has been paid on that cross. But what I'm going to argue is that is not the kind of representation that Job was seeking in his redeemer. Job doesn't, in other words, see his sin as the source of his problems. He doesn't. He is looking for someone to mediate for him and God because he has steadfastly claimed his innocence and knows in his heart that he has done nothing to deserve the suffering that he is experiencing. As I mentioned last week too, he also feels the need for a mediator with God because he's no longer sure that he can rely on God's goodness and justice. He's starting to lose his trust in God. And that's why he says, I wish there was somebody who could go as a go-between between me and God and help me in this broken relationship because God is not answering me. He refuses to show up and hear my cry. I'll return to that at the end of this message, but just put a pause on that for now. If you still want to sing those songs and listen to Handel's Messiah, that's okay, all right? You can still enjoy it because it's, it's biblical, just maybe not rooted in this text, okay? It's now Zophar's turn to speak, and he just piles on more of the same. In Job chapter 20, verse 27 to 29, the heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. So as with Eliphaz and Zophar, Zophar relies heavily on this principle of retribution. The righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. And therefore he believes in Job's wickedness that it has been revealed through his suffering. And I want to say this. This is where Job's friends get it so wrong. It is one thing to say that the wicked will suffer. But Job's friends at this point have gone beyond the principle of retribution that the Bible teaches. And they are basically arguing that anyone who suffers, therefore, must be wicked. And that's not saying the same thing. Their argument is anyone who suffers is therefore revealed to be wicked. In other words, what their argument is, is that the wicked always, wickedness always results in suffering and only the wicked suffer. And the Bible never claims either of these statements. 
In other words, Job's friends are abusing the principle of retribution, trying to make it say something that it never claimed to say. And so Job opens his final speech in chapter 21 with these words. Then Job replied, listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so interesting that I feel like this could be written in a blog or something in the 21st century. And then Job launches his final counterattack in this cycle. In verses 7 to 15, he says, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? You see what Job is doing now. He's saying, if this principle of retribution is so ironclad, then his argument is this. Why are there so many undeniably wicked people roaming this earth with no worry in their life at all. And he says, you know, some of you make this argument that, well, it just looks like they're not being punished, but it's justice delayed because God may not get them, but he's going to get their children. And it says that in verse 19 to 21. It is said, God stores up the punishment of the wicked for their children. Let him repay the wicked so that they themselves will experience it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care about the families they leave behind when their allotted months come to an end? Do you hear his argument? He's saying, what kind of justice is that? Justice delayed? Why let the wicked get away with it just to punish their kids? He says, that's not justice if they never suffer the consequence of their wickedness. And then he even makes this last argument and says, for the truly wicked, do they even care what happens to their kids? All they're going to think is, I got away with it in my life. Forget the next generation. And then Job continues in verse 28 to 34. You say, where now is the house of the great, the tents where the wicked lived? Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts that the wicked are spared from the day of calamity, that they are delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces their conduct to their face? Who repays them for what they have done? They are carried to the grave and watches kept over their tombs. The soil in the valley is sweet to them. Everyone follows after them and a countless throng goes before them. So how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. What Job is saying is you guys are endlessly referencing this principle of retribution. But are you guys so blind that you don't see that none of this actually pans out like this? Are you so clueless that you realize, don't realize that life doesn't work this way? 
And then what Job says is, have you not, I mean, maybe you're living such insular lives that you don't know any of this, but talk to someone who has traveled the world. Talk to anyone who knows how the world works and they will tell you it doesn't work this way. The wicked go on to prosperity and they laugh at everyone and think, I got away with it. They don't know the justice of God. It's ridiculous. Life simply doesn't work this way. Um, I told you at the start of the series that I feel a little bit of discomfort because I'm not going to wrap every one of these messages with a nice little bow and say, Jesus, you know, and there everything's good, right? Because we have Jesus. Um, it's true. But I think to honor the narrative flow of the book itself, I'm not just going to say amen here. <laughs> That'd be cruel. Let me just give you hints as to where I think God is going to go with all of this, though, before getting ahead of ourselves to what God actually says to Job. Because this principle of retribution fits into a certain category of the wisdom found in the Bible, which we could say is this. These are general principles of wisdom that tell us how God made the world to function, but they are not airtight, ironclad arguments that everything always works this way. Because if you read the Bible that way, then you're going to cry bloody murder all the time and say God does not keep his word. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom like this that says generally these principles are true, but they're not always true. Let me just give you an example of one. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Generally true, but not always true. Anyone who is married knows this because you have tried the gentle technique and you got smacked around for it, right? And you go, God lies, God lies. This doesn't work. So next time I'm just going to blow up at my spouse because whether I do gentle or whether I do angry, the same thing comes back at me. There is a greater wisdom that God is pointing to us here than simply rules that have to be obeyed. What God is trying to get everyone in this story to see is his heart, his heart. There is this tragic irony in Job's search for an advocate. Because at the start of the story, God is Job's biggest fan. He is actually the only one truly advocating for him among everyone else in his life. At the start of the story, God is the one that says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears me and shuns evil. God is saying, I love this guy to death. I love him. I have no problems with him. But the crazy thing is Job doesn't ever get to know this, right? There's never an indication that Job ever sees that scene that played out in heaven. What he doesn't know is that it is the Satan figure who stirs up all of this trouble for Job, arguing that Job is only in it for personal gain. And if God were to withdraw his hand of favor, then Job would curse his name to his death. And as I just sort of leave this hanging intention, I just want to invite you to that place of reflection 
Let's pray, actually, before we come to the Lord's table. I'm just going to wrap up here and invite you into a moment of reflection here. Oh, man, there's just, there's just something so brutal about this book of Job. Um, something so brutally honest. And Job is on this journey taking these principles that he has learned all his life about who God is and he's now trying to apply them to the reality of the life that he now knows. And Job is struggling. He is really struggling. And he says, I get what the Bible says. I get what God says. And then I see reality of how my life plays out. And not just my life, but life in general. And he's, and he's saying something is broken in the system here. Something is really, really messed up here. I don't get it. I don't get this. I don't understand what's happening here. And in that failure to understand, he begins to lose confidence that God is good, that God is just. But I think somewhere in all of this, there is a God whose heart is breaking alongside Job. And he's saying, Job, hang in there. This isn't the end of the story. Hang in there. There is a God who, even in his love for a man like Job, would allow suffering like this in his life. And I think one of the greatest dangers is that our knowledge of God is so inexorably tied to our life circumstances. Remember those two grand statements. Life is good and God is good. And for all too many of us, they are inseparable. What does it mean when life is no longer good? Can God still be good? That's why the Bible tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. There may be seasons in your life where it's going to feel like God has abandoned you and wants nothing to do with you. But by faith, we come to that place where we can say, I don't understand your ways, God. I, I can't put it all together into a system that makes sense to me but I'm going to still trust your heart for me, that you are good, that you are just, and that you love me. I don't know if actually you have ever experienced a season like that in your life. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. But as I said at the very start of the series, we need a theology of suffering before that suffering comes. Because when that pain hits, it is too hard to scramble together a theology of suffering at that time. What is your theology of suffering? What is it that you believe about God and his ways and what he will allow in your life? My prayer is that even before the storm comes, that we could come toward that place of absolute trust in God and surrender to say, God, I trust in you, that you love me and you care for me. Would you just pray that for a few minutes, asking for the gift of faith, that God would grow that faith within your heart. And then just in a minute here, I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table together as a church family.